Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today's guest is Ethan Chatagnier. Ethan Chatagnier is a Pushcart Prize winner whose stories have appeared in the Kenyan Review, Georgia Review, and New England Review, and been listed as notable in the Best American Short Stories. He is the author of the story collection Warnings from the Future and lives in Fresno, California with his family. He's here to discuss his debut novel, Singer Distance. For fans of Station Eleven and Light from Other Stars, Ethan Chatagnier's propulsive, genre-bending debut novel asks, what happens when we discover intelligent life just next door? And what does it really mean to know we're not alone in the universe? Welcome, Ethan. Hi, thank you for having me, Lindsay. Oh, I'm so excited. I love this book so much. I was talking about it constantly because I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around how you could have come up with such a concept and then pulled it off. And well, thank you. To, to the point where like my kids know all about the book and we're asking questions about it and like what happened. And yeah. <laughs> um, so it's really cool. Um, and I, I can't wait to talk to you about it. Um, but to start us off, would you read a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'll read a bit. It's just going to be kind of starting right from the very beginning of the book and the, the opening little section there. Perfect. As soon as I saw the light off the side of the highway, I felt myself falling in love with it. It was too far from the road to be a town and too high up to be a farmhouse. The light was the wrong hue anyway. We'd passed many roadside lights in this week of night driving, and without realizing it, I had become fluent in the language of them. This one was a word I couldn't translate. No town huddled next to it. No road branched off toward it. Its unknowability, its unreachability compelled me. I felt the urge to veer toward it. Crystal slapped my shoulder and told me to wake up. I gripped the wheel tighter and told her I wasn't sleeping. You were drifting, she said without judgment. Not much to hit out here. Lucky for you. The only thing you could hit out here is a pothole, and those are in the road. You're assuming the space is empty because you can't see what's in it, she said. You should know your way around that old fallacy. I'm comfortable with the inference, I said. I saw what the state looks like in the daytime. Crystal said she could drive since I was falling asleep. No, I said, stopping would wake the others. I told her again that I hadn't been sleeping, but felt less certain this time. I felt fresh now, set in a state of magic alertness, a headspace as clear as the sky after rain. I peered into the darkness north of the highway, looking for the light. I checked for it in my mirrors. It was gone. It might have been a dream, or it might have been in my blind spot. We were in an old newspaper van with tiny mirrors. The whole thing was a blind spot. We were on Route 66, somewhere west of Oklahoma City, sometime past midnight in the waning days of 1960. Our self-appointed mission was unknown to anyone but the five of us in the van. Ronnie, Otis, and Priya were dozing in the back, but to me, in those hours, there was only Crystal. I looked at her there, barely lit in the cab of the van, but still glowing. She'd started college at 17 and grad school at 21. 24 now. She was the youngest of us by four years. She didn't look it. Her eyes were young, and her smile was young. But light creases were appearing on her face. Her hair hadn't blanched, but it had dulled, some of its color draining away, even in the two years that I'd known her. She'd be gray by 30. My mother was like that. She looked older than she was, but wore her age well, as if the signs of it were fine accessories she'd graduated into. Smile lines were the best makeup, my mom said and no amount of cosmetics would cover up a lifetime of frowns. Like fine wood or leather, she and Crystal were both improved by the slight sense of wornness. I did know not to say that to a woman, even if I thought it was a beautiful compliment. 
Johnny Preston was on the radio, but hardly existed. Our friends sleeping in the back of the van hardly existed. I lived for these nights with no one but me and Crystal, the darkness of the expanse erasing everything but us. A road can be the connection between places or the distance between them. And as deeply as I long to reach our destination, I also long to drive this one forever. I'd volunteered to drive the night shifts. I was a natural night owl, I'd say. They all knew otherwise, but no one else wanted to volunteer. Those moments were perfect, just the two of us awake in the pocket universe of the van. Otis snored, we discovered, but at highway speeds, you could barely hear it. The lightest breezes sounded like waterfalls when they broadsided the van. He was turned toward the wall of the van, his oversized frame taking up more than a third of the mattress. His feet stuck out from the bottom of his blanket, resting against the cold metal of the van's back door. Ronnie slept in the middle, crowded closer to Otis than he would have liked, in order to allow Priya, sleeping on the other side of him, a respectful buffer of space. No matter how we arranged it, you could smell other bodies while you slept. This was the close quarters traveling that came with long shot missions and desperate hopes. I thought about what I could say to start Crystal talking. I often said things just to hear her respond to them, not only to hear her voice, but also to see her way of thinking. It was a game I played with myself to say something I thought interesting, something I thought I was interesting for knowing. So I could see how far beyond me she was. We'd been together for a year and a half, but I still felt the same need to prove myself that I'd had when we started dating. I'd fallen in love with her in our first semester, listening to her translate our professor's complex ideas into simple analogies so the rest of us could get it. The brilliance radiated off her, of her, but she was so unaware of it, so used to it, that she inhabited as casually as an old sweater. The great unexplained miracle of my life was that she'd said yes to a date. I'd come to understand that it always feel like this around her, this blend of torture and rapture. I mentioned the rumble strips that had recently started showing up on Boston's freeway on-ramps and off-ramps. In a few decades, I said, they'd be everywhere. And they seem like some utopian metro extravagance now, some city planners splurge. But the economics were there. Fork out for them once and for every prevented accident. You didn't have to pay police to come monitor it. You didn't have to call in a tow truck and cleanup crew. You didn't have to pay for litigation. You're imagining a safer future for, her, for yourself, she said, and everyone in the van with me. Did I know, she asked, about the musical road in Denmark? It used bumps like road braille to play a melody. You can do the same thing with those grooves. Change the size and spacing of the grooves to control the pitch, then arrange those pitches in a pattern to create the timing. It hardly looked like anything more complex than a railroad track, but could contain a whole song. All you had to do was drive over it. Imagine every highway in America, she said, with its own song coded into the grooves of its shoulder. And that's where I'll stop reading the, the opening scene there. The premise of the book is that we've been communicating with Mars, um, that we sort of sent out a signal to them by carving these, you know, long grooves, these, you know, enormous grooves in the earth and lighting them on fire and that they responded. And then they kept getting more sophisticated with their communication with us, you know, adding math to it, these beautiful ma mathematical equations that we could understand. And then we, we couldn't understand. Yeah. Um, and which is kind of where the book takes it up. And I am so stunned at such a beautiful 
premise. It almost, the premise alone is almost enough to bring tears to my eyes because this notion that we aren't alone, you know, in our solar system, we aren't alone in the universe is um, not something that I ever thought would touch me in that way, but it is automatically like we were sort of joking earlier that if you add a dog to any any (laughs) piece of literature you're already emotionally involved and that's exactly how I felt about this premise um and I just wanted to know it 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 feels like such an ambitious premise that if it ever did occur to me I would think man someone better than me (laughs) should write that and you did it you wrote this book where where did it come from? Where did it start for you? And how did you keep yourself convinced that you could pull it off? Well, I had half the premise for like a really long time. There's this um, this book, I think it came out in 2013 by Ken Kalfas called The Equilateral. Mm. Um, and it it shares a certain amount with this premise because, you know, because I, I kind of took parts of it. Uh, but in that book, it, around around the turn of the, the 20th century, um, you know, like late 1800s, early 1900s, an astronomer tries to signal Mars by carving a giant equilateral triangle in the desert and setting it on fire. Oh. Um, and in that book, there's not, there's no one on Mars to respond. There's not a Martian civilization. It's kind of about human folly and imperial folly because it's like, uh, I think it's England, uh, an astronomer from England doing it in like the, the, desert of Sudan or something like that um but I I love that idea of like communicating with aliens not through like radio messages mm-hmm. or or anything at all sophisticated but like like by, by digging a big hole and setting it on fire mm-hmm. like so lo-fi um and it's kind of like this thing about you know people way before modern technology trying to like reach out into the heavens and get a response Um, and i thought it would be really interesting if if a civilization there did respond like what if they got an answer Mm -hmm. Um, and the angle that that appealed to me on that was what if what if there was a civilization there and they kind of responded but they really didn't care (laughs) like (laughs) we like our neighbor has a a civilization on it and they're just not that interested in the earth. Um, and I think I I kind of got a feel for the theme there because it's like, it, it's tied right up with that feeling that probably everybody's had where like you, you want to be as close as possible and someone you're totally fixated on them. And they're just like, not that interested. They're close, they're around you, they're in your orbit, but they, they don't have the same fixation on you. Uh, and so I was like, well, that's, that's got like thematic energy that works with a love story with mm-hmm. someone who's kind of more, more in love with someone than they are with them or in love with them in a different way. Um, but I had that premise for like that part of the premise for like six, seven years in my, in my iPhone notes where I track my ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and one day I was kind of scrolling through it, looking, looking through my ideas, trying to put stuff in my head. And I, and it just kind of occurred to me like, okay, how would they communicate maybe with math? That's what a lot of scientists think. And the idea of that's where the other half like clicked into place of like, okay, it's trying to solve math that hasn't been solved yet. Trying to, to like have characters trying to prove themselves to this Martian society. Um, And from there it was like off to the races. 
You know, I'm definitely so much more simple than you because it just only occurred to me now the parallels between like there's a similar misunderstanding in like crystal's intelligence and rick's intelligence although like he gets in his own way a lot yeah but she's on this other plane of understanding and intellect and like you know dimension almost in the way that she views the world and he tries um but he he views himself as sort of like her workhorse or her enabler yeah um and the, and you're so right that there's there's that parallel between Earth and Mars in this novel where, you know, it may not even be that Mars doesn't care, but that they're communicating on a different level that we just haven't been able to access yet or we can't even consider yet. Um, and and so that so in that way we're we're not equal and so we can't come together, um, like Rick and Crystal can't come together. Yeah, yeah, I was really wanted to like play around with that. And it was fun. It kind of it gave me places to go with the premise to say like, okay, I'm going to play around with like shifting around the distance, the kind of physical distance between them. There's a part in the middle of the book where they're like writing letters to one another instead of instead of writing right next to each other in a van. Yeah. And um and kind of yeah, just just play around with that and this martian civilization that kind of sometimes responds to us sometimes doesn't that kind of stuff do you think it's true that and why do you think it's true because i feel like it is an assumption that we all have that we are not as sophisticated as any civilization that might be out there um Uh, i do you think that's because we're so (laughs) (laughs) self-absorbed that that if it came if it if it became true that there was something out there and it was trying to communicate with us it would sort of be like a wake-up call for our intelligence i don't know what is that i mean i think i think it's kind of i mean it may be that that humans are like self-centered and we <laughs> we like to make the story all about us uh, but also i mean at least at at, at this point probably a, a long point in a long way into the future you know if if an alien civilization were able to communicate with us that would mean that they had like that they were way beyond us to yeah. like get get a message or anything here to us in our in our solar system, you know, provided they're farther away than than Mars, which is probably right. um, whereas, you know, if there's if there's another planet that has like alien deer on it, mm. then those alien <laughs> deer can't beam a message into space and get in touch with us. Um, right. Like they're so in I, their dinosaur phase in that yeah, in exactly. that planet. So like in 65 million years, our planet might be dead but their planet will be coming to life with humans or humans similar. Yeah. And they'll send a message our way and then there'll just be no one here to hear it. (laughs) Whatever like amoebas are left. will just be like bright light. Anyway, (laughs) do you like math? Like were you into math in school? I wasn't super into like math in in college. I think I took one math class because that was the minimum I could take. And it wasn't (laughs) even like a serious math class. It was like, it was was a topical math class. It was interesting, but it was like the mathematics of voting systems, like ranked choice, standard voting. So it was interesting, but it also wasn't like hard math wise. (laughs) Um, So not exactly. I mean, I I didn't hate it as a subject, but I... um, I did take kind of an interest in um, in certain kinds of science, like, you know, like relativity and quantum mm-hmm. physics. And these are all things that people don't actually like work in it and go to grad school, don't really understand. But we understand through like an analogy that that 
someone on a science documentary gives us. And so that was like <laughs> my level of understanding, but that's fun to watch because without understanding like the numbers and the equations behind things, it just kind of feels like, like magic, or like mm-hmm. this real magic that, that really exists. That's kind of how I feel about dark matter. Yeah. It's like, we think it exists, you know, because like, it's this thing that's there where nothing else is. And like, sometimes that's easy to wrap my head around, but sometimes it's really not. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's just the magic cloud that's out there mixed in with everything. Yes. Which also quantum physics is similar for me. It's like, <laughs> there's these really small, large things like, ah, oh, got it. <laughs> yeah. That's why it was kind of fun to play around with. Cause it almost puts you in like a, I don't know, like a world like lost or the leftovers where just like mysterious stuff happens, but yes. it's like mysterious stuff, but it, it, it's math that works on that level because because we don't understand it well enough yeah or I don't understand well well enough but your your science and your math in the book feels very real um and and I wondered like was that you doing doing research and including that or was that you sort of like just riffing on these concepts that you've always really liked probably a mix of the two like I mean I don't think don't think too many of the analogies there are directly like cribbed from a specific thing but I you know I I had watched some documentaries and and read some books on some of this stuff in the past Um, and I I refreshed on some of it and I feel like what I'm basically faking it all the way through because my understanding (laughs) is is very surface level Um, but I feel like to, to fake it you watch that stuff and you can get like one or two details that you need to convince someone like to, to kind of make it fly mm-hmm. but most of it comes from like listening to the way people talk about it you know like so mm-hmm. if you watch a space documentary you'll hear like eight different scientists who are all like pretty pretty good media communicators talking about it mm-hmm. and you can kind of borrow some of their voice and that's I think that's where a lot of the the making it convincing comes from and thing mm. i'm glad to hear it came across as convincing because oh, yeah, when you're faking was... it, you never you never know if people can tell yeah like you know i feel like for me there'd be like this this like you know almost in in the book like me passing my hand over my mouth like and then there's you know <laughs> let's look over here now where you're I drafting never... and you've got like a note to yourself like put science stuff here exactly like... make this make sense later <laughs> but i never felt that way i i felt bought in so you know completely all the way through the book and was really bowled over because it's it seems like I said it seems like such an ambitious and hard thing to do um but also very um very literary and um beautiful you know at the sentence level and the image level um and so I I don't know I just I I I feel like it's a success thank you thank you you did it (laughs) um did it start with crystal for you or or rick or not it started with the pair um Mm. because i i was working with like i knew from the beginning it was going to be kind of a parallel between whoever the couple was going to be and earth and mars and so i wanted like the you know earth is always in the book trying to measure up to mars and prove itself and so I wanted to set up a dynamic with that. So I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm going to need a couple who's the, um, who's the, um, who one person is like the the shooting star and the other one is just like totally gaga over, over her and um, 
and um, it, and kind of fixated on her in a way she's fixated on Mars. Um, so I kind of came up with the pair and I, I, you know, I rolled around some different possibilities and found the one I liked best was like, you know, the kind of the woman who's the genius and the guy who's, who's running support. And, um, it's because it felt a lot less dusty than if, you know, it's like the male well, the genius, man's the genius and the woman who's, who's planning everything for him. You know? Right. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Can you talk about setting it in the sixties and the seventies? Yeah, I, I kind of worked my way there. I, I ended up, I, I don't have a lot of desire to write like a historical novel. Like so I never, never something where I'm like, I want to write a period piece. I'm like, no, that sounds like a lot of reading of, of, <laughs> of old stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was kind of thinking it through and thinking, okay, we're starting from like, you know, pre-space age stuff, early 19, 1900s type stuff. Um, because that's when there was a real, martian craze in astronomy where some astronomers thought mars was inhabited and that's Mm -hmm. like where war of the worlds came from Mm -hmm. um and um so like kind of working forward from there and i knew i needed like some time where earth and mars were communicating regularly back and forth each time they they passed each other and then i knew i needed a period of like some decades where the communication mostly fell apart and people kind of forgot about Mars and, and Mars was, became a reminder of something that's like missing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like a few decades of, of good communication, a few decades of bad communication. And I knew I had kind of an, an upper bound on how, how far forward in, in the, I was going to say in the future, in the past, I could, I could place it because in the, you know, in the mid sixties, you start getting a lot more things like, uh, you know, probes launched into space and the moon landing is late sixties. And, um, and so you get a lot more human space travel capability and it made things, you know, it's going to make things really complicated with, well, why don't we send a probe to observe Mars and that sort of stuff, which Mm -hmm. I had to deal with in, in some later parts of the book, but for the main part, I wanted it to be like, we're still a pretty earthbound society and don't have a lot of ability to get out into space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have anyone sort of going after you and saying, you know, they didn't have these kinds of things in the sixties. They didn't, you know, or was it because I I don't think that you like went overboard in the detail, but it's, it's very authentic in the way that it plays out. And I think like as a, as a present day reader, you know, not seeing a phone, you know, like that's, (laughs) that's a simple way to be like, we're not in, you know, we're not anywhere near the year 2000. Um, Or in ancient times. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like what, did you have someone who was keeping you honest that way? Or was that you? Um, I didn't, I had some people who, who checked and helped me fix things along the way. Like I've got um, a couple of people in my writing group who are around in, in the sixties. Um, and, um, some people actually like, um, actually I had a good copy editor and said, they, they checked me on some things like, you know, this, this wasn't a thing in the sixties. Um, and, um, and even someone like, you know, throughout the process, a lot of people like touched the book. And so, um, someone at the distributor, um, uh, that Tin House works with, which is, uh, Norton, um, gave back a couple comments that I did hear a few things that, that don't fit the time period. So that was useful, like kind of working out those kinks and stuff. And then there were some, I worked out along the way, like, um, and it was harder than I thought. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't want to commit to a lot of research. 
Um, but then I was like, okay, they're, they're in a van. And so naturally I'm picturing like a big, like big blue late sixties hippie van. Right. But those didn't exist then. Those didn't come out until like 1965, I think. Um, And so I had to like, like what was around then? And that's why they're in a newspaper van is because I was like the closest thing to a van at the time. And I had to like search it out. And what they had was like, you know, those like long cars they had in The Godfather. It was Mm -hmm. kind of like those uh, where it looks kind of like a a big station wagon or almost like a hearse. And and so that was what I, I had to go with. And there were some other things, other things like that or where I'd like, you know, I, I referenced a couple musicians in that that excerpt, um, and actually, like, my first thought was like, "Oh, well, it's in the 1960s. I'll use the Beatles." 1960, mm-hmm. the Beatles hadn't hadn't crossed over yet, oh, um, wow. and so I had to look up look up who was making music then, and like, I put in Johnny Preston. I don't know who Johnny Preston is. But, I don't either. Um, I assumed you made him up. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, sorry, Johnny Preston. And. Um, and so it was a lot of like figuring stuff out because I feel like like people our age know the sixties through like documentaries and movies that were made then. And that's all from like mid sixties on. Right. But yeah. 1960 was pre transformation. And so it was like more I like I, 1950 I re- than 1965. Exactly. I remember watching Mad Men and realizing, well, they're in the sixties, like the early sixties, but it still really looks like the fifties. Yeah. <laughs> Um, can you give an example of, of something that like people caught? Um, there was one thing, um, there was something about phones. I'm trying to remember what it was. Cause it was a, it was a little detail, but it was like, I think Rick said, says at one point, like he, he paid a, when the crystals on a different coast, he's like, I'll pay to have a phone put in, um, and she's like, that's not how it worked then. You didn't just like have a phone put in. There was something about the um how the the phone company had to like lease the phone to you or something like that. Oh. I'm trying to remember some of the other details. Um and there sometimes we'd leave leave things in, even if it's a little bit anachronistic. Like um the, the right at the end of the excerpt I read, uh Crystal talks about a musical road in Denmark, mm-hmm. which is a real thing the copy editor caught that it that wasn't built until like 19 i think the 1980s or 1990s or something so much later um and so i was like okay let's change this and my editor said you know let's just step that i like it let's leave it in um Mm, i love that yeah my editor was much um better about being willing to step things i'm i'm like probably over polite about things i'm like okay you, you say so you say so copy editor i'll go with it um and, <laughs> my, um, my copy edits this this go around felt more brutal than usual or maybe it's just been too long yeah yeah but like on the very first or second page she caught something where i said like the baby was going to be born and, and it would have freckles and her comment was like babies can't have freckles they haven't seen the sun yet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i mean that's not her tone at all but that was the tone in my head and uh, i I was like, oh my God, of course. <laughs> uh, no, mine mine got me with the line where I said like, she walked toward me one step at a time and the copy editor had this note that said, that's just how people walk. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that is just how people walk. <laughs> like, I don't think they meant it as a burn or anything, but, but it's one of those things where once they say it, it's so obvious. It's like, but 
I I love a good copy editor. Like a good copy edit feels somehow like it's like pleasantly humiliating in some way where you're like, I'm glad to have you on my team fixing all these like dumb things that I left in there. Yeah, it's like a really painful, like scalding hot bath. Yeah. But you get out and you're clean. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of myself as like someone who who tries to be very sharp and clear. Yeah. Maybe. And it, and then you get the copy edits back and, and you're like, oh my God, I've been using all these cliched phrases that mean nothing like that. One step at a time, yeah. you know? And it's like, why, why, why can't they just walk toward, you know? And it's like, I don't know what it is. Am I trying to like fluff it out for word count or something? I don't know what it is, but it's, it, it is, it's wonderful to have someone call you on your bullshit. Yeah. You- and it, <laughs> and it's funny. Cause I think, you know, for most people who've been been writing long enough to to get a book together usually you you pick up a lot about like grammar and mechanics and how things are supposed to work and avoiding Mm -hmm. cliches and so it feels like you know you talk to other people and you're like the expert on that kind of stuff and then you pass it along to the copy editor and they have like mutant powers where they pick out every single thing um and it's it's kind of incredible it it really is. It is, it is a talent. Like, and sometimes I'll think to myself, like, I could, I could probably do that for someone. And then I probably couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, my first novel, um, my editor, I went through after the copy edits and was like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, like, yes, change that, change that. And and my editor did the same thing yours did and said, no, you need to set a lot more of this. Um, Cause the copy editor's more concerned with, they're not concerned with style so much. Although yeah. I do think, Sometimes they are good at that, you know, um, but it's nice to have an editor who who's like, no, no, this is your voice. This is your your thing. And that detail about the musical, you know, highway bumps seems like it could have been in the 60s in Denmark, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Not like... I mean, my plan, my plan for it was first like, OK, well, let's let's keep it, but change it to another country. So so it's like invented and it's not this earlier version of the real thing. Right. My idea was just like, hey, yeah, I think we can just leave it and and it's not going to catch anyone. You know, it'll probably catch a Danish reader who's, right, who's exactly. 40 plus, you know. <laughs> but, Is your book going to be published over there? No, no, okay. I, but I don't, a Danish I person. probably won't find any, any Danish readers, but, but should it, then I, I might get an email. <laughs> I'm sure it would be a lovely, lovely email. Come at me, Denmark. i guess i'm I'm realizing like i trusted crystal so much which is a credit to you that i just believed her you know like it didn't ever occur to me to be like is that really a thing you know yeah well i know there's a mix of stuff in there that's invented versus researched and it was kind of the goal was to to blend together some of the real history with some fake history so there's you know mentions a a number of real scientists and and mathematicians you know like einstein everyone knows and heisenberg is somewhat well known maybe especially after breaking bad mm-hmm. um yep but um but there are some in there that i i just kind of made up for some background character and that kind of stuff hmm. can you talk a little bit about writing this novel because i know before this you had you had a collection was this your first novel you'd ever written it was not the first I'd attempted, uh, mm-hmm. it's the first one I got to the finish line on. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, like a big graveyard of chapter ones of different novels oh. where or sometimes <laughs> chapter two and, and occasionally a chapter three where I'd, like, oh. I'd start something out and I'd, um, I'd get a chapter two or three in and I'd feel like I felt a fatal flaw. And I think mm. the, you know, 
for for most people the the method and the prevailing wisdom is you just keep going through that and Mm -hmm. you you get to the end and then you come back in revision Mm -hmm. and you you sort it out and you figure out the the way to solve the unsolvable problem and and for me I just I, I had trouble working that way and maybe I may need to adapt to that in the future but I've found like the method that usually works for me with stories and worked for me here is more time up front figuring stuff out. So rather than mm-hmm. like fixing things on the back end and I, I, I put things together more on the front end. And I think I do some of that similar work and figuring out to revision. Uh, I do on the front end of things that I'm, I'm figuring out the initial premise and then I'm figuring out kind of, as I'm writing, also kind of feeling my way forward toward what'll happen, what'll make sense, what'll be interesting. Um, and so so I hit those points in in other books that I, I couldn't get past or where I, I kind of lost faith. And then I'd, I'd just go try something else. A lot of times mm-hmm. it would be like, those novels getting hard, I'll go write a story. <laughs> and so I'd, <laughs> I'd do that a lot. And then on, this one just kind of started with a real a real big head of steam and and the setup had enough like self-propulsion that it carried me along into deep enough that deep enough in the book that I'm like okay let's keep keep going with this Mm. and are you showing it to people along the way I was in in chunks I've got a a writing group here in Fresno um, and so I was sharing it with them and they were very very kind because I'd I, I wrote it pretty fast. And mm. so I'd come in and I'd be like, well, here's, here's 70 pages for our next meeting. <laughs> and they're all like, okay. And some of them didn't quite finish it. And that's absolutely fair. Cause you know, it's, it's polite to send in like 10 to 20 pages, right. um, but I'd send it, send it to them in, in these big chunks, basically it, it's a book in three parts. And so I'd send them one part at a time and then, um, and get some feedback from them on that. Um, and then keep keep working ahead on the next part while I did that. Do you meet like once a month? We we have been now probably like once every one to two months now. Okay. It, we when we were meeting in person, we'd meet like three times a year. Even though we we tried to meet every like month or two, but then yeah. it's so hard to line up everyone's weekends and everything. Um, and then when we switch to Zoom, it's easier to just like check in, even if you can't leave home. Yeah. And so we've been able to keep it more like every month or two then since then that's nice so if you're doing a lot of that upfront work figuring it out and then you're writing really fast did it change a lot in between your your first and final draft no it, yeah. I mean there were some the biggest changes were in editing with with my editor at Tin House like the the main developmental edits um and between the first draft that I finished and the first draft and the final draft that I, I sent to agents, it was it was mostly polishing little tweaks, fixing little logic problems and stuff, trying to shore up characters a little bit. And then there was a similar round of that with my agent before we went on sub. And then the the biggest changes were with with Elizabeth at Tin House, mm. um, which I think the book would still be pretty recognizable. It wasn't like cut a section or delete a character or anything like that. Um, But it was more like we shifted a timeline up and changed kind of the starting point for part three. Mm. Um, 
and um and fix some like mangled jumps between different kinds of narration in part one um and so it's a lot of the same stuff just kind of with the the problems bent out of it um mm -hmm. do you feel like you've cracked the code for novel writing or do you think that was um only specific to this novel i'm very worried that i have not <laughs> no specific to this novel and because not all of it but a lot of this one just came out feeling right like i knew where i wanted to go with it um and i feel like it it did help me build some of those skills of putting together a book as a whole and figuring out how it all works together um and knowing you could do it knowing you yeah could see it through but on the ideas I've been kind of developing since it's been harder to kind of figure out the entire shape of them and, and get that same level of drive from the beginning of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so like, there was very much that feeling with this one, like it clicked into place and I've, I've got some things that I'm working on that it's like, I'm slowly putting things into place, but it's different than clicking into place. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll have to see if I can pull it off. And I think I'll probably have to, you know, do it more like the, the method that, that I was saying that you hear like, okay, get it out, finish it, and then address the big problems. Um, I keep, I keep wanting to work around because I, I don't know if it, it's laziness or it's time or it's, you know, just, trying to keep up with everything and, and keep the energy in the writing. Uh, yeah. You're trying to avoid the slog. I think that's like, as someone who started out writing stories as well, that is my jam too. Like trying to keep the energy and the, um, the momentum. And I was talking to Rebecca Mackay and she was saying like actually typing is, is, a, a small portion of the time that she spends writing books. Yeah. A lot of the time is thinking and figuring out these problems. And then yeah. she's got it kind of straight in her head and then she just types it. Yeah. And that's, that's very much the same for me. And it kind of came about like, I didn't intentionally make the shift, but it came about when my kids were babies and like, you have no time to sit down mm -hmm. and write. And I'm sure you've had, had, many you know a lot of time in the same zone mm -hmm. um where it's like okay i don't have time to sit down and write here if i'm gonna have writing time this week it's gonna be like half an hour on friday mm -hmm. morning or something like that um and um i was kind of you know grudgingly accepting of that one but i'd find i'd be like thinking about a story while i'm doing the dishes or yeah. uh you know um you know holding holding a sleeping baby and can't do anything but sit there right um and so I'd have all these bits of like quiet time where I'd start like feeling a story developing and I'd, I'd write down the note or the development in my phone notes. And then I find like, Oh, the story idea has like four different paragraphs following it of ideas I have for the story or lines for it. And then when I'd sit down and write, I could like just start putting that stuff in there and connecting it. And so I could use that half hour on a Friday to like actually write, write forward in a way that wasn't testing out the idea or figuring mm -hmm. out what I wanted to write. It was like, I knew what I wanted to write. It was putting into words. Um, and I, so I've, I've kind of tried to carry that forward of like, you know, building, building most of something in my head off on the side and then just 
getting into notes and letting it letting it simmer there and then getting on the page i'm telling you it's like if you guys if anyone out there is listening and you're like how can i be more productive instead of wasting all my time just go have some kids because <laughs> you will write so much in your 20 minutes a week yeah. <laughs> it is insane how much how many words you'll get on the page <laughs> yeah and and that quiet time because it kids will keep you busy even when they're quiet like when totally. when a baby is sleeping you're yeah. still busy uh, and um uh, but finding those like quiet bits of quiet time whatever it is where it's like a walk or a shower or like the time between when you get in bed and when you fall asleep like mm-hmm. you can you can build a lot then and just let your mind like roll a, an idea around and figure out something that's right and latch onto it uh, and that kind of like saved me during that period because otherwise I would have gone you know, four years without writing anything, but instead I, you know, I finished a few stories a year and sent them out and felt like I was still connected to my writing process. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, building my skills at the same time and moving myself forward. And, um, and that's good. Cause I needed that. Cause I was like the only expression of my identity. <laughs> at the totally. Time. Yes, exactly. It's like you, <laughs> I feel like I'm hanging on to it with like the very tips of my nails at times. Yeah. I'm not going to let go, but oh my God, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. How many, how many kids do you have? I've got two. Okay. Um, so how old are they now? They are 11 and eight. Okay. Um, so a little so easier. They're a little easier. They're more self-sufficient. Um, they, uh, it, you know, so much depends on like who your kid has as a teacher in a given year and how much mm. homework they bring mm-hmm. home. <laughs> oh my God. Yep. Um, and so like there's a lot of working on projects and helping stuff out and that's good. You know, it, it's, it's my kid working hard and learning stuff and me getting to, to be involved. Um, but they, they still keep me busy, but at least they're now both in school. That was a big change. And mm-hmm. that probably goes along with how I got the novel written is, I think it was the first year that they were both in school at the mm-hmm. same time. I think my daughter was in like TK transitional kindergarten. So she was at school for like three hours a day. That's um, a good three hours. And so that, you know, that lets you fit in a little bit of time um, and, and, you know, build up a little bit day by day. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You mentioning the homework is really bringing me back. Cause I, I guess I have like, um, I have unresolved issues from my own childhood and doing projects in school that I've never (laughs) fully confronted. And I just thought, well, it's fine because I'm no longer in school. I don't have to think about that anymore. But I I do have to think about it because I have to help my kids do these like in kindergarten, they have to do a presentation on an animal and they have to like find out fun facts and write them down and cut out pictures and stuff. And I like even talking about it right now, I, I need to lay down. <laughs> well, and, and then you come to it with like adult standards and you're like, right. Okay, and I, I did these as a kid, but now I know how to do this right. Yeah. And I don't want to be that person. Like there's so many parents at our kid's school who like clearly did the project for the kid, yeah. you know, and it's like beautiful and so cool. And my kid's looking at me like, why is there, you know, and I, I just don't believe in that. I want them to do it. Yeah. But then it's a shit show. And I'm like, <laughs> oh no, am I going to get in trouble because I let my kid do this crap <laughs> like yeah. should I have pushed them harder there's just no easy answer yeah yeah same thing and I, I try and walk the line and be like okay I'm gonna help I'm gonna push fix this correct this try this um but there's that balance where it's like okay um 
am I leaning toward doing too much of it and doing it for them or not helping it? <laughs> right. Am I like, am I coming to like hovering over them yelling? Yeah. Okay. Then I need <laughs> to step back. <laughs> like this is not that deep. No. Oh, it's, it's really, it's, um, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. And you get, do you have three or four? I have three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like it's exponential. Like the, how much, how much work kids are. So so three kids is like four times as much work as two kids. And then well, four kids is like 16 times as much as that. It's so true. And But the thing is like going from one to two was extremely hard for us. Yeah. But going from two to three was way easier. But you're so right in that like I look at pictures of my family before our daughter was born, before our third was born. And the house is like tidy and like there's no like <laughs> dings in the wall and like, you know, like <laughs> things make sense you know and like my house is clean but you can tell that it is weary yeah. <laughs> and it's the like chaos builds there's yes some, the, the third child start looking that. weird yeah. yes oh my god <laughs> I, like i'm like wait a minute when was the last time i dusted this thing you know and you look yeah. and you're like you know and it really is it's like it's exponential how things get away from you when the third one comes yeah. <laughs> even as it's easier in a lot of ways yeah um yeah. Life. Life's hard. <laughs> um, I want to talk about working with Tin House because I feel like if someone's telling me about a book and they tell me it was published on Tin House, I know right away it's going to be amazing and yeah. I'll read it no matter what. Um, can you talk to uh, talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I love to talk about Tin House. Tin House has been really, really wonderful. Um, and I kind of, I had seen or heard a couple things that helped me feel really comfortable going with Tin House when when that's who took an interest. Um, I think one of them might have been from here. I think it might have been when when Adam O'Fallon Price was on, mm. um, and he talked. If, if it wasn't here, it was him on another podcast. Um, he talked about landing at Tin House for his second book after his first one had been with one of the big five publishers, mm -hmm. and just feeling like okay, everyone's like everyone at Tin House like knows this book is going on. They're enthusiastic about mm -hmm. it. They're interested. Um, I think it was him who told the story about like, going to his big five publisher. And... You know what? I thought that was J. Robert Lennon, but um, uh, maybe it you're was. probably the, right. The other person I was going to talk about was J. Robert Lennon talking about Because he was talking about like Grey Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So same, same kind of thing from both of them where they, they both had books come out with big publishers before that felt like they got kind of lost in the shuffle right. where they were just like one of many books. Right. And then they went to, to gray wolf for, for, um, for John and, and um, tin house for Adam. And they're like, yeah, everyone, everyone's checked in. They care about every book and it's great. And so when, when the time came to make that choice, I was like, okay, yeah, I feel really good about this. I know they'll, they'll take good care of my book and it's not going to be something that, like disappears once it doesn't get good trade reviews or something like that um, or just disappears when they don't feel like they've got that mysterious energy to it and they stop publicizing it. Um, so it felt, it felt really good going into it. And that was totally my experience going through is like the, yeah, everyone I worked with there was, was great, very, you know, fun to work with professional, good at their jobs um, did, you know, did things for the book that I kind of like, couldn't have imagined like getting the book on somebody's like list that it was on and, mm -hmm. and getting blurbs from like amazing people who, who I didn't like know or have 
connections to in in almost all the cases but um who they sent it out to and and were able to get get great blurbs from and um they they were just awesome and you know and, and it's a i think it's like really the sweet spot as a publisher like in-house like gray wolf um where they're independent but they're not so small that they don't have resources like they've got uh you know they've got a publicist they've got a a publicist in a small team basically um you know and, and a marketer and distribution and so it's like the goldilocks thing where it's not so big that your book gets lost mm-hmm. and it's not so small that they don't have the resources to kind of get your book where it needs to go mm-hmm. did you have um a say in how the cover looks um i i got it run by me and i i was really happy with it i i loved it it's incredible um, yeah and um and yeah it really pops from the from like far away i've noticed like when i've gone into barnes noble or whatever to see it and then like oh you can see it from like 30 feet away um mm. and it, it kind of stands out on the shelf and that's not something you know i had my own like idea for what the cover might look like beforehand is that something that you do where you've got like your imagined cover before yes, you get a cover absolutely um, yes and that's bad to do because then i'm like wait this doesn't look like that. Am I yeah. supposed to be disappointed? There was a little moment of adjustment for me yeah. too regarding that. And then I started to see it from different places and, and see it from far away. I was like, what, okay. What was your idea? I, I like it. Uh, it was something about like a a road with, uh, you know, a road going through like a field of stars and then like hitting the horizon line and going beyond it in some way, which is kind of vague and and probably like too literal in, in many ways. Um and so when I, I first saw the cover, I, I think I kind of felt like that was missing. I wanted the sense of movement that a mm-hmm. road would give. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I just had to adjust to be like, oh, that's, that's not what the book designer chose for it. And, but let's, okay, let's look at it on its own merits and, oh, it's beautiful and it's evocative. And it's got kind of two layers. It's mm-hmm. got like the. The speckles. That makes me feel yeah. like it's, there's movement. And then the background on the horizon line, there's a little like satellite dish yeah, that yeah. I, I just love there because I like, zoom into that. Um, and, and I, you know, I thought about it more later too, when I was kind of reassessing, I was like, I was thinking about book designers and how they are thinking about things. I think on a lot more levels than the writer is because right. they're mm-hmm. thinking about how the cover ties into genre and how it deals how it interacts with like what's been trendy lately what are popular book covers what's been overdone you know what's been what type of color schemes are people using lately and I don't know any of that nope (laughs) um so it's good to have have people who do and anytime I've seen the cover received like a a bookstagrammer posts a picture of it people pop in the comments like I love the cover um Mm -hmm. so I I'm you know I'm happy that it it ended up what it was and I didn't get too hung up on, on like, no, let's, let's stick to the vague amorphous idea I had in my head. Beforehand. <laughs> yeah. It's like, make it more literary, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's so good. And I've, I've learned over the years that like my first and second instinct about cover options is usually wrong in some way, like mm-hmm. later down the run, down the line, I'll think back and think, why did I have a problem with X, Y, Z? because it is really emotional for you as a writer you know like you're thinking about covers you love and thinking about seeing your book in a bookstore and and 
you want it to convey what's inside you. Yeah. Um, and that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that Tin House talked about when they were figuring out the cover was trying to kind of speak to the weird genre space the book is in. Yes, I wanted is, to ask you about that. Yes. It's very sci-fi in the premise, but it's it's I think it's leaning much more to the literary side. And yeah, I never would have thought of it as science fiction. I just thought it was literary sciencey research you know like i and then i saw that it won the octavia e butler science fiction award and people keep calling it science fiction right yeah and um, i don't think it's wrong to say that but i've been it's been surprising to see like who's reading it i know the advice for all readers is to stay off goodreads right don't don't look at anything <laughs> on goodreads and yeah. that has never been me from the beginning and i knew like if i made an effort to to stay off goodreads that was going to be like an effort to not eat halloween candy and i was just going to like <laughs> go in and gorge it all at once i've like I, I i've read every single goodreads review and i'll i'll wow. take it farther and i'll like click through when i get a rating and be like you know what else is this person rated and uh you know sometimes it's grumpily like oh they they gave me a two-star what well, what did they actually like or James what good books did they not like that's always james stuff. patterson um but I feel like most of the time when I click through, it's people who most of of the other stuff they're reading is sci-fi and like Moore's kind of heavily in the sci-fi column. And it, it's kind of funny. It's not what I expected. And in fact, I, I kind of worried sci-fi readers were going to pick up this book and be like, you know, what is this? What is this, you know, literary garbage about his, um, about Rick's daddy issues and that kind of stuff. And, and there's been a tiny <laughs> little bit of that. But I feel like most of those readers that I was I was worried about have been have been more receptive. And I feel like it's been quieter on the on the literary side of it. It's not getting read as much from that direction. Mm. And it, it's just one of those weird things. And it it's kind of funny. Like when you've got a cross genre book, I think that appeals to a lot of people. Like it's kind of a popular thing now. Or it, mm-hmm. It's a niche now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets you into it's a weird thing with like shelving like mm-hmm. you're gonna shelve it in one place so is it shelved with science fiction or shelved with literary fiction and is it kind of like more reviewed one place or another they should um, shelve it in both places why not yeah they have more than one copy right put one yeah. there one the other place or 10 I there agree. 10 the other I mean, place shelve it in in every section yes <laughs> there's romance there's romance yeah. in here yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's tough. So it, it's just curious because it's not, it's not what I expected, and it was kind of like, it's almost the inverse of what I was worried was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and it's just a weird thing. It's really hard to get across what genre a book is in when it it's kind of using elements of of both, and sometimes that helps a book like breakout huge like severance or like right. station 11 mm-hmm. and then sometimes it, it kind of sits in a weird spot you know like every bookstore every big bookstore now has like a book talk section yeah yeah um they should have like a cross genre section yeah you know I'd, i agree that would be a great section that would be like my first place i'd stop at yeah because it's true i mean like i love a literary um like murder book literary yeah. thriller you know i love that kind of stuff um yeah okay hit me up barnes and noble we got more ideas 
Um, I want to end with a quiz. Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to quiz you on Mars. Okay. Okay. Like like with the math, I'll, I'll preface by saying that like with the math, I was kind of like, I'm not a Mars expert. I'm faking it all the way through. So so don't be surprised if I tank this quiz. Listen, you're trying to hustle me. You're going to get every answer right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> also, I got these from Fun Facts for Kids. <laughs> all right. Who has a higher mountain, Mars or Earth? Mars. I, I've got this one at least. Okay. Mars has the highest mountain in the solar system. Do you know what it's called? Olympus Mons. Dang, dude. I learned well, that today, yeah. but you already knew that. All right. True or false, there is frozen water on Mars. True. Oh, my God. See, I told you. Why is the soil red on Mars? Oh, it's something oxide, iron oxide. Yeah, it's got rust. It's got literal rust on it. Um, All right. And what is a Mars bar called in America? Uh, Milky Way? Yeah, see, you got everyone right. (laughs) Good job. Were you are Mars the Mars bars, expert. Did Mars bars used to be called Mars bars in the U.S.? I feel like I remember that. And I then think they, they disappeared. Yeah, I think they did exist in the U.S. for a while. I think you can actually still find them like at those like specialty candy shops and stuff. Okay. But I think the I think they're Milky Ways also. Branding is so weird. Yeah. Nothing better than a Milky Way dark, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The dark ones are better. Milky Way dark matter. Um, Ethan, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was really fun. I love Singer Distance. Everyone go buy it from Tin House, buy it from Bookshop, Venmo Ethan directly. Um, it was it was so much fun to read. I tore through it. I absolutely loved it. Well, thank you so much. And let me I uh I meant to squeeze this in somewhere earlier too, but um, you know, I can't I started coming into the lit mag world in like 2010 to 2012 somewhere oh, yeah. in there and so mm-hmm. i felt like like i was starting to feel things out in like the indie lit mag scene mm-hmm. and that was where i first came across Lindsay hunter like an, oh. episode, uh, an issue of of barrel house and so like when you start to to get into that world you read stories by people and they've got like a strong voice or something um or you know you just catch their work and you're like oh i'll check this out um, and Lindsay Hunter was one of those those people for me. I was like, okay, this is a this is a lit mag celebrity for me. <laughs> and then, like, <laughs> and then you, you see him go on ahead. Um, I feel like uh, you mentioned Rebecca Mackay earlier, and I yeah. um, remember before might have been before she had any books out, or when she just had her first one out. I remember reading one of her stories on five chapters. Do you remember five chapters? Yes, totally. Uh, where they published like a, a story in five parts mm-hmm. over the course of a week. Mm-hmm. And I read one of her stories there. I'm like, wow, who's this? Um, and then it's like, you watch them a few years later. It's like, oh, they they won. Was it the, the she Pulitzer, was a, the National Book Award? She was a Pulitzer and National Book Award finalist. And she won the Carnegie Medal. Yeah. Um, uh, and like a bunch of other crazy accolades um, yeah. and is also like the nicest, most giving, generous person. Um, so yeah, she's, she's quite awesome. And and I feel like people don't read her stories enough. She's an excellent short story writer. Yeah. Yeah. Before I, I got to any of the books, I was, you know, I, most years I'll try and read like the best American uh, um, and or the push card. Um, and there were like four years in a row where she had a story in the best American. So it's like, oh my God. Oh, and I think that's how it like, 
stuck with me too. It's like, I'm like, Oh, I like the story in five chapters. And then I like the story in like, in, in bass 20, yeah, 2016 and 20 mm-hmm. or 2014 and 15 and 16. It's like, oh, you this, this are a pushcart prize winner. You're a pushcart prize prize winner. And you were in bass, uh, notables. Yeah. Yeah. Those so were both pretty we exciting. That. The, um, the pushcart thing, I didn't really believe at first. Cause it happened mm-hmm. like it happened real fast and, mm-hmm. and kind of in this quiet way where like I, I had a story in the new England review and it came out. And then a month later, the editor, you know, I mean, they're like, Hey, by, by the way we nominated you. And then the next month they were like, Oh, Hey, you, you won this. Congratulations. And, uh, but it was just a basic email and oh nothing came to me from like push cart directly. It wasn't really? like even like a letter in the mail or anything. You don't even get I like think, a medal or like a thing you can I show. Think, no, I think they got me like a, I think I got a contract also sent through new England review um, for the permissions. Um, but so <laughs> I spent a while being like, am I imagining this? like, <laughs> is my brain playing a weird trick on me? Am I, am I like, I, I didn't tell people cause then I thought like, am I saying that, that I got it, but I'm in like the, the notables in the back of that one. Um, and then it showed up and it was real. So that was, that was really cool. Um, that's incredible. But, yeah, there's, no, there's no like medal or prize. They send you a copy of the book, but the, the cool thing is that um, if you, they'll solicit nominations from people who have been in the anthology before. Oh, so cool. just Twitter, like asking for recommendations for things to read, but then you can say like, you can send along a handful of stories that you had in literary magazines and loved um, and say, Hey, you know, put these, uh, put these in your bucket for consideration. And then sometimes you get to see those show up in the anthology. And that's really cool to be like part of it as it, as it lives on. Someone told us in a previous episode that it's, it's just a man with his typewriter, like in a shed and it's full of stuff. It's like brimming with stories that he has to read. (laughs) That's what I imagine. It's very lo-fi. And yeah. Bill Hendrickson is um, the guy who runs it. Um, and I heard I heard him do an interview on the the TK with James Scott podcast. Yeah. Um, and he's like very pleasantly cantankerous, <laughs> like, like old guy, uh, which is exactly how I pictured him because it's like, nope, I don't want to deal with like email. I don't think he does much by email. I think yeah, ev- everything that comes from from pushcart is is done by snail mail um and and it's kind of cool and you get it like if you look at a copy it's got that feel of like an old book the you know the pages are a little pulpy and and all that kind of stuff and it's just um i think that's my favorite of the of the yearly anthologies because you just you can find some kind of weird stuff and experimental stuff in there um that this is really good Thank you so much, Ethan. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you again, Lindsay. Usually, this is the time that Alex and I shoot the shit, as they say. Um, And since it's just me, I thought I would mention some things that I've been reading that I really liked. I just read Joanna Novak's Contradiction Days, which comes out in July, I believe, on Catapult. And it's her memoir of the time just before she became a mother, when she went to um, study Agnes Martin in New Mexico and sort of try to 
claim forevermore her status as an artist so that she wouldn't lose that status when she became a mother. And it's um, incredibly raw and um, true and sometimes hard to read. Um, But I absolutely inhaled it. I didn't know much about Agnes Martin before that. And I loved learning about her and I loved reading about this fellow writer and mother really thinking hard about her identity and what made her makes her who she is, who she was, who she will be. Um, and just clinging to that even as it was changing all around her. So Joanna Novak contradiction days, check it out in July. You can pre-order it now. Um, And I'm reading something called Wonder When You'll Miss Me by Amanda Davis, which I believe someone recommended to me on Twitter when I asked for books about toxic caregiving. And there's a little bit of that in there, but it's also um, this wonderful coming of age journey um, from this incredibly traumatized teenager. And um, it was uh, like a, L magazine book of the year it was recommended by the New York Times book review it was everywhere and the author died in a plane crash on her book tour um so it's a tragedy but it's it's great I'm really loving it it's dark in all the ways that I love and sad and funny um so you know me I love that and what else has been going on I watched a movie Alex I watched a movie um on Hulu last night called Watcher with Micah Monroe, who I love. And uh, it's creepy and scary. Recommend that. It's weird to be here by myself. I think all of us miss Alex, but we're all excited for what's coming for him. And thank everyone. Thank you everyone for listening.